Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. We're very honoured to have this spectacular creature with us today. <laughs> I'm sorry, we've been rehearsing a piece since 9.30 this morning that was um, only delivered at 10.30 this morning. If anyone's going to the thing tonight, I probably shouldn't have told you that, but if anyone's going to the opening gala tonight, you'll know that a bunch of community players and doctors and a few professionals got that music at 10.30 this morning and it's sounding incredible. Anyway, back to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is Paul Kilday, polymath, genius, intellectual, superstar. Um, before we talk about Chopin's piano, can you tell us all of the things that you've done, your conducting and composing and all of the other books you've written? and um, Sure. I... I uh... I, when I left it, this is just this so <laughs> Monica can catch her breath. Just said, please, Paul, so talk for 20 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah no, so I, uh, I was a, a piano uh, student, majored in piano when I was an undergraduate. And then when I left to go to uh, do postgraduate in England, um, I started writing about Benjamin Britten. And then that became my thing. So Britten um, kind of took over my life for, for quite some time. And it culminated, I think, in some senses in, um, in, 19, in 2013, which was the centenary of Britain's um, birth. And so I wrote a very big biography um, uh, on Britain for that year and then had to leave town, more or less, <laughs> chased out by English people with pitchforks. And, uh, yeah. um, and uh, apart from that, I've been artistic director of the Wigmore Hall in London, um, the Four Winds Festival. Um, I used to be head of programming at the um, Albrecht Festival, which was Britain's festival um, that he founded in 1948 with Eric Crozier and Peter Pears. Um, and then I came back to this country. I was telling um, my colleague and friend Hal um, that on Thursday it was two years to the day since I came back um, to live in Australia. Um, and uh, yeah, and then since then, uh, beautifully became artistic director of uh, Music Aviva, a really wonderful organisation. So. What brought you back to Australia after all that time? Um, Brexit and a bike accident. Um, yeah. Uh, no, seriously, I was lying on a... Uh, um, at Berlin, of course, has these really beautiful um, bike paths and... Uh, um, but, and this woman with a, a, a trolley suitcase um, just walked right onto the, um, on the bike path. And, uh, and so I braked in order not to kill her. Um, and they just went completely over and I was lying on the bike path um, thinking, I don't know the number of the ambulance in Berlin. I don't know, you know what I'm meant to do at this stage. And I just sort of thought, oh, it's time to go home. <laughs> at least there, at least <laughs> everyone knows that the ambulance is oh, oh, oh. You know, it has to be. Can you remember that when we were kids? And, um, and, and, and you had to go, oh. <laughs> and there's a fire and, you know. <laughs> Your place is being burgled. <laughs> You're sitting there going, come on, phone, come on. <laughs> yeah, so that's what I came home for. Yeah. So what – I'm not an author. In fact, I don't make anything. I serve people who make things. So I'm very happy serving people who make things. I don't have any creativity in me except for maybe um, – Oh, well, yeah, but you can't be creative when you play the violin, especially in an orchestra, because you can't do your own thing at all. You have to be exactly the same as the, the 29 other violin robots around you. <laughs> uh, there's no room for improvisation or creativity or anything. So I'm, I'm very happy in my life serving 
serving audiences, serving creatives, composers. It's it's really different mindset. I mean, I live with a creator, Stefan, who's just always creating things, <laughs> situations, wonderful music, art. But um, what I'm interested in is describe the morning you wake up and think, that's it, that's my next book, I'm going to write Chopin's Piano. How does that come about? Is it is it a light bulb moment or is it a slow gestation? Uh, it's a bit of both. And first of all, I would say that um, curating and, and you know, I wrote to you when I first saw the brochure for this festival and just sort of said, oh, my God, this this is amazing. And that's high praise um, because he's run so many festivals. <laughs> but I, th- I say that curating is one of the most creative things that I do. I mean, it's I, I just absolutely love those conversations where I you just go, um, oh, my God, if we put that together with this and, oh, if I introduce this person to that person, this will then lead into that and that will bring this about and... Um, yeah, so I'm just disagreeing with you ever so politely about <laughs> <coughs> about one thing. Um, the, Chopin, the Chopin piano uh, was really interesting because uh, in the 2013, in the in the Britain centenary year, I was with some friends, and um, uh, and I won't give all of this away because it actually ends up in the book, um, which you should buy and read. Um, <laughs> But uh, we were having lunch and, and she just told me the story about um, being in Vienna in uh, 1950, uh, 51. And, um, and the Barenboims, um, you know, the parents um, were great friends with her parents and saying, um, your daughter is so talented, you know, you, we should get a piano and um, um, a proper instrument. And, and they went in Vienna and um, looked at this warehouse just full of, you know, proper, beautiful, big, um, you know, and they found this old Bersendorfer and... Um, and she told me that story at lunch where we were all laughing and then suddenly, in, really in that moment, I just thought, I went, of course, Vienna was completely full of these instruments, um, you know, uh, that, that have been left behind by um, Jewish people fleeing for their lives or stolen by fucking Nazis. And, um, um, you know, and, and it really was just the penny dropped. And I just sort of went, why do we know so much about art um, and we know nothing about instruments stolen uh, between 1933 and 1945. And so I went, I will write that book. <laughs> and then we drank some more and just went, oh, this has been a productive lunch. And then, um, and then in the course, of, um, <clears throat> the course of doing my research, um, thinking I was going to write about, you know, all the instruments and what had happened and what the, the Nazi policies were um, regarding music and all that. And then I just found this one piano um, that had been looted and uh, and I thought, ah, actually, I'm just going to concentrate on that piano and tell its story. And then that allowed me to to go back in time, go back into the 1830s, which is a period I just adore. Um, so talk about that, talk about the music that was written on a, and uh, and then Chopin. And then the funny thing is, um, you know, I, I told my old piano teacher who turned 80 um, two weeks ago, um, I said, oh, yeah, you know, when I said I'm, I'm going to write on Chopin, he said, but you hate Chopin. <laughs> I said, no, I don't. He said, no, it wasn't. No, it was my piano teacher before I went to the con. And he said, you know, you, yes, you, you refuse to play a piece of it. And I went, you've got to stop telling people that. <laughs> I keep saying, oh, I've been playing this since I was, uh, yeah. So, so then I had to learn all this Chopin. It was ridiculous, a 40-something-year-old man learning Chopin that, <laughs> yeah, so uh, that was, that's how it happened. So it really was a combination of, you know, that lightning moment where you, where you just go, wow, uh, I'm going to write about that. And then, of course, books change. Books change when you write them. Mm. Books change, you know, when you have a conversation with someone and then suddenly you're going off in that direction. 
This is why you just wrote about one piano because it's pretty thick. <laughs> it would have been Proustian otherwise. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, funnily enough, uh, uh, I, I talked this morning um, about this wonderful lawyer, um, restitution lawyer uh, in California called Carla Shapro. And I didn't know her when I started my research, but she's actually the person who's writing now the book on on you know all the stolen instruments, and it will be a monster. Mm. You know, she she kind of, uh, and she's just this wonderful creature who uh, who, who her hobby is to um, make violins. Um, so that's what she likes to do because that's really easy. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think she does it with pipe cleaners. You know how we used to do everything with pipe cleaners. <laughs> Look, I've made a violin. <laughs> Um, no, she's serious and she plays. And um, but yeah, she's a restitution lawyer. She's an academic, and she's just she's been just fighting these cases sometimes. And um, and she just said, look, music and instruments is is easily twenty years behind, um, easily twenty years behind um, art, the visual arts, and all the things that have happened in the restitution of um, looted uh, paintings. Um, so she said, we're only just really getting into it and people taking it seriously and, and looking at that whole history. So this is like the Monuments Men of – has everyone seen that film with um, that hottie, what's his name? George Clooney. Clooney. Yeah. 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 It's a fantastic film. Documentary. On... <laughs> I've always thought it was a documentary film. It yeah. is really not a documentary <laughs> film. It's so stylized and glamorised and Hollywoodized, But yeah. it's a really interesting – on this subject yeah. – uh, about looted uh, art pieces and, in fact, the Pieta, which was found yeah. in a salt mine in That's right. in Poland. I mean, it's a fascinating film and beautiful. It's a little bit makes you cry because you know that they manipulated you, Hollywood style, so then you roll your eyes at yourself and you get annoyed. But uh, the story that they tell is really fantastic. Yeah, and the story is essentially true. You know, it that, is absolutely based yeah. on many yeah. facts. Yeah. And on that, this book has been signed... To be oh, made yes. into a film, yeah, which will be out in twenty twenty one. Oh no, it won't be out in twenty twenty one. But um, it, it, you, that's what it, you told me the other time. I think that I think they're running By behind. Merchant Ivory. No well, less. it's the, it's the well, Merchant Ivory doesn't exist anymore. But the the president um, of Merchant Ivory, when they made all those films that we all love to death, um, it's his new company that's doing it. Um, uh, and they're at the moment they're filming um, Huckleberry Finn. Um, they're doing a, a really kind of unvarnished version of Huckleberry Finn, which I think will be pretty gritty. But then the floods in Orlando, I, I think, earlier in the year has now, that's where they were filming, so everything's a bit slow. But um, So it won't be 21, but <clears throat> it will be soon afterwards. And, and how did that happen? Did you get the phone call? I did get the phone call. And they said, the are you sitting call. down, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I know exactly how it happened because um, there's this rather wonderful Polish artist um, who's on the board of the Met, um, the museum, and um, and she happened to be in London when this book came out a year ago because it came out in June last year. And so there was lots of press and lots of um, uh, talking and, and, um, and she just happened to hear me being interviewed and then... Um, she read it and she rang the film producer, who's a friend of hers, and just said, I found your next film. And I'm like, yeah. And so that's, he got the call and he said, okay. <laughs> She's pretty formidable. Yeah. Okay, I'll make that film there. <laughs> and then he rang me. So, yeah. And so what's the process? Are you Have you just given it away to them? Yeah. So you don't write the screenplay or approve the screenplay? No, or? I get to... Um, I get to say things like I'm, I'm going to be a music consultant, so I get to see the scre screenplay and just to say, 
you know that pianos aren't made out of pipe cleaners or you know whatever <laughs> <laughs> to return to that theme um so you will be involved yeah in- i'll be involved and i'm music consultant so i get to sort of say no that's a they wouldn't play like that um the pieces wouldn't have been performed in that way you know so i get to do all those kind of things but i, I wouldn't know how to write a screenplay and I can just- you say no i don't think brad pitt it's very good at miming on the piano. <laughs> like, do you have any input like that? Do you remember? Because J.K. Rowling, when the Harry Potters were all being discussed, she said, I don't want any American actors. They need to all be English because it's in England. Yeah. And I don't want this and I don't want that. And she had really good control over the characters and the casting. And Yeah. Uh, that's J.K. Rowling. <laughs> yeah, but you're, the, you're just as magical as her. <laughs> what a nice thing to say. Uh, no, I'll have uh, I'll have nothing uh, like that. But I will be able to just make sure that they just they just don't do stupid things with the music. Yeah. Um, and it's like talking to Richard Tognetti about teaching Russell Crowe how to fake the violin. Exactly. You know, it's really it's hard. So um, yeah. Can you remember? There used to be this comic show uh, called Fast Forward when I was a kid, and um, and I always remember the one where they had um, Skippy. They'd always have this, you know, completely, you know, <laughs> inanimate Skippy hopping along. And then they'd say, oh, my God, Skippy, there's a, there's a bomb you need to defuse. And then they'd have <laughs> this fake kangaroo, fake <laughs> kangaroo paws <laughs> defusing the, the bomb. <laughs> oh, God, that used to make me laugh and That's laugh what those laugh. films look like when they have people faking, especially the faking, violin. Faking, playing violin. Sometimes it's know? even back to front. Sometimes they're even... It's <laughs> like people. And, and you just go, Skippy can't play a violin. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knows that. So, yeah. Um, I'm interested to know um, how many countries you went to in your research and how long the book took to research because um, what I've read of it, it's it's incredibly detailed. You would have had to travel to... Mallorca and yeah, I did. Vienna and, and Poland and Paris and tell us about that journey and how long um, it took. And Oh, yeah. It's just funny because I remember um, my accountant um, ringing me one day when I was doing my tax and he, and he said, a, a research trip to Mallorca. <laughs> <laughs> You're never going to get that one through. Don't you wish that George Sand went to the Bahamas? <laughs> Yeah, and I said, no, seriously, seriously, I had to go there. And so that part of it was great. So I, I spent just five days in December um, in a really beautiful, unlike the poor winter yeah. that those guys encountered. Um, this was, I was walking around, you know, in T-shirts. And uh, um, uh, so, yeah, I had to go to Mallorca, of course, lots of time in Paris, um, a bit of time in Poland. Um, uh, yeah, how long did it take? It's, uh, it probably took about... No, I, I wrote it pretty quickly, funnily enough. Once I started writing, I, I think I wrote it in two years. And then my editor, I've got this fantastic editor, um, and and <laughs> and he wrote wrote back an email going, ah, okay, um, you're part, you're you're the one percent or the point point you know five percent of um, uh, uh, of authors who deliver on time, and I'm nowhere near ready for your book. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, and and that's what happens. You know, he he he's the publishing director of Penguin. And he um, he takes on about ten books himself a year, and they're usually just ridiculous books, you know, um, like Margaret Thatcher's biography, Margaret Thatcher's autobiography, all those real kind of door stoppers. And um, and so yeah, and once that <clears throat> once that carnival comes into town, you know, that's what he works on. And um, so um, so he then took a, he took a while to get round to this. So um, um, but anyway, it came out more or less on time, I think. Um, 
Yeah. So it probably about uh, three years, three and a half years from me having light light bulb moment to um, to it coming out. Yeah. And all the Wonderland. I can't pronounce that. Landowska. Landowska. Yeah. Wonderlandowska. Yeah. yeah. That that's a that could be a separate book. That's so interesting. Funny enough, that's what my editor said when he finally got oh, really? around to it. He just said, "Okay." It's throwing it in the first version before we edited it. Um, he just said it's really throwing it too much out of sync, and and so it's um yeah. I disagree so. because um this whole section about this harpsichord player, she was really seemed oh, a bit weird yeah. and really influential, and yeah. she had salons and writers and artists, and mm. oh, it's just it's just amazing what she did, and with performance practice as well, because. Um, Performance practice now is a thing that we talk about a lot in music. So, for example, they've done versions of Mahler symphonies with no vibrato. So can you imagine it? Instead of going and being all expressive, there's no vibrato because there's been research that says that vibrato only came in in the early 1900s. So you imagine all that romantic music that you've listened to, Tchaikovsky, Brahms, Mahler, all of it, apparently they played with no, not very much expression in the left hand. So that starts you thinking, and then there's some zealots who then <laughs> form entire orchestras of, of little mini zealots and play Mahler. So you can listen to it online. The Mahler Five with no vibrato is, I think it's Stuttgart um, and some, I can't remember who the conductor was, but, um, you know, it's, it's so interesting for us because especially when you play in the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra for a living, one week you'll be playing Star Wars. The next week you'll be playing probably a whole co- concert of Bach and because the performance practice movement started in the 1960s, we're 50 years on and you can't really play Bach like that anymore because there's been too many recordings and too much of a movement of going back and researching what the length of that note should be, what that trill symbol means, that what the practice was at the time. And so for us, we have to be incredibly versatile and flexible and well-read and learned to be able to play John Williams style one week you know, Bach style the next week and then big Tchaikovsky symphony the next week in some conductor style and then it's it's really it's daunting. And I think she really delved into that for the first for for yeah. one of the first <coughs> times. I mean she was earlier than nineteen sixties, wasn't she? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Arguably she started the entire yeah. movement. Yeah, I I think she did. Um yeah. uh, she she was certainly had. There was this wonderful man in England called Dolmetsch, and and I remember Benjamin Britten saying about Dolmetsch that you know he plays the um, he plays the recorder, he plays the violin, he plays the sack butt, he plays the um, the bassoon. Um, Every one as bad as the other, <laughs> and every instrument as bad as the next one. Um, but he was he was trying to be a serious scholar in the 1930s. Um, she's doing this. She discovers the harpsichord in 1898, um, and uh, she used to say a lot. I mean. I think history has been really poor towards her and um, and towards Georges Sand as well. And uh, and if only I could put my finger on what it is about them that um, oh they were women. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is. And they were inconvenient um, in in the way that men wanted to tell the story. And um, and certainly people became so kind of proprietorial about Chopin. And the idea that Georges Sand would, um, you know, have been anything but, you know, this nasty malevolent force in his life is something that was uh, written about <coughs> from, well, Chopin died in 1849 and, and the first kind of books start appearing in 1851, 1852. And the narrative is set and you have um, men 
writing about what an evil person she was bad for his health she's bad for his health you know she was a succubus and a vampire and all of this all of those things yeah and um and if you look at I, i write a little bit about um the the film made in 1945 a song to remember which features um, uh, uh, Jossand and Chopin um, going to Mallorca um, as lovers, and it's hilarious because <laughs> they, you know, they're staying in this amazing panelled, you know, beautiful building with um, gorgeous curtains and rugs, and and he's writing with this big quill pen and you know grand pianos, and you know, and when you go to Mallorca and you go up to the monastery, perhaps you should describe where they lived. Oh yeah, so they, they did. They lived in this. Um, they they got rooms in because of the dissolution of the monasteries in the um, late eighteen thirties um, throughout Spain. Um, uh, they ended up uh, being able to take uh, an apartment, if you like, three rooms in, in this um, former monastery. Didn't they call it a cell? Yeah, they called it a cell. Cell number. Yeah, cell four. number four. Four. Yeah, um, and so they lived in the cell. Uh, and it's kind of amazing, but it's cold, and it's 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 really really kind of depressing. And uh, they had this tiny heater, but it was the coldest winter that there had been for you know for decades. And uh, um, and so the, the the difference between the disparity between uh, how they actually lived and how Hollywood chose to um, depict it, it's back to George Pitt. I'm afraid George Pitt, um, <laughs> Brad Pitt, the younger, yeah, the younger. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it's uh, Clooney. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so yeah, they lived in this this amazing, um, uh, austere and rather wonderful um, uh, monastery, uh, which now is kind of a shop, Chopin circus. Um, but yeah, both both Chopin and sorry, both Sant and Landowska were kind of really treated poorly by um, um, historians. And she's a really, Landowska is a really, really phenomenally interesting musician in the same way that Georges Sand, if you read her books today, which no one does, they're really, really great. She's mm. so ahead of her time. And Landowska is as well because she discovers the harpsichord in 1898 um, and then he's still playing the piano up until about 1909 um, and then from there on more or less dedicates herself entirely to the the harpsichord. And so she really is prefiguring prefiguring the whole change in the way that we think about early music. She made one mistake, which was that she she often used to say, "Well, um, it's in the in, in the French terrors of the 1790s and the revolution, um, the harpsichord, because it was the instrument of the aristocracy, uh, all the harpsichords were destroyed, and so they were thrown out of castle um, windows, and and uh, so that, that no harpsichords actually survived, <clears throat> and that's partly true, um, and and then you get people in the the very late um, 19th century, trying to uh, build harpsichords, not so much replicate harpsichords, but build a modern instrument. And she decides, okay, I want the old harpsichord, but I want it with you know bells and whistles. And and that was her mistake. Um, she wanted this, she wanted a harpsichord built that was loud enough to fill the concert halls mm-hmm. that didn't exist when the, the harpsichord was in its vogue. And um, and so. On the one hand, she's this great scholar, uh, re, uh, rediscovering all the music of Rameau and Couperon and Lully and, and, and performing it, you know, on concert platforms, uh, but performing it on these ridiculous um, large playel harpsichords that she'd commissioned. But that's her only mistake. Something's just occurred to me. You know how we're um, discussing and singing about Louise Hansen Dyer tomorrow? Mm. And she was the first publisher of lots of that music as mm. well. Did they know each other? They did. And did, oh, <laughs> really? Yeah, they didn't like each other. Because they were both <clears throat> champions of the same course, really. Same course, 
Same time, uh, d d Louise Hanson Dyer, another amazing, astonishingly um, uh, uh, person and figure and, and of such importance um, in the presentation and um, publication of this early music. Um, which, so Landowska didn't do that. Landowska did nothing regarding the publication. And Louise Hanson Dyer, this, this amazing, come tomorrow morning if, you, if you're not already, um, this amazing Melbourneian who ends up um, in London and then Paris, uh, publishing this stuff, forming her own company, um, and uh, can you yeah. say it in French? I can't. Oh say yeah, l'oiseau uh, lire, which is the the French word for lyre bird. bird. Um, and and she she man, she got so much of this right. She got so much of it wrong for a long time as well, which I'll talk about tomorrow. But um, again, she she was just kind of really inspiring. This kind of yeah, I won't go. I I talk about her and. Yeah. Most affectionately tomorrow, but um, they did know each other. The problem is that um, the the presiding saint and and scholar, if you like, in in Paris in the nineteen twenties, was of course um, uh, Nadia Boulanger, and um, and everyone uh, went to study with her. Like all the the emerging um, American composers in the nineteen twenties, straight after the war, some of them had served. Um, that's where they go to uh, reassemble their lives uh, after fighting and, and after the the just kind of cluster of um of world war one can and i pop in here with a fun <coughs> fact yeah um previous festival director stephen mcintyre studied with nadia boulanger as well mm. uh, stephen wonderful man um he he read this book and, and and wrote me an email and 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 i had forgotten about the boulanger um connection and uh he said um Oh, I met this uh, Dodo Conrad guy, your your monuments man. Um, I met him um, in Paris in the eight, in the eighteen. <laughs> don't tell him that, please. Uh, <laughs> in 1965, I met him, and um, uh, and he was talking about the Chopin piano, um, and um, and Stephen could remember every detail of this conversation, and then so of course Stephen said to him, uh, "So where's it now?" And he got very shifty at that point. And Stephen turned to the friend who was with the composer and just said, he knows exactly where it is. <laughs> Do you think, yeah, well, anyway. Yeah, can't, yeah, can't yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so, read it. Yeah, read it, read it. But, <laughs> no, but Boulanger was, was the person, Boulanger and um, uh, uh, Landowska didn't like each other, so you had to choose. And Louise Hanson Dyer um, chose Boulanger, um, mm. not, not Landowska. So, um, yeah. yeah. So if any of you <coughs> in Melbourne have been to the Lyrebird Music Society at the Wieslaski Auditorium at Melbourne University, that's also the Lyrebird Music Society was founded by and yeah. in honour of um, Louise Hanson Dyer and her, her work. It's just incredible people. Um, what did you learn in your process that, because you know, I mean, you know more than anyone I've ever met in my entire life. You know more things than about 50 people, 50 really <laughs> smart people. It's just not true. It really you. is. Yeah. And you just pick those dates out of your mind. And you just... remember that wonderful um, scene in, uh, we'll get back to this, but that wonderful scene <laughs> in um, uh, The West Wing where um, Jed Bartlett, uh, Professor Bartlett, Professor Bartlett, President Bartlett, <laughs> is walking along and he says, uh, morning, Ned, morning, Jim, morning, Peter, morning, Sally, morning, Margaret. And, um, and then he turns to his chief of staff and says, did I get any of them right? And he went, <laughs> no. <laughs> so I've given you lots of dates. That's you, true. You, you could just be making that <laughs> I could up. just be making no, it I up. I remember in 1853. <laughs> and we're all going, wow, he's so smart. <laughs> but um, on that... Uh, did you learn anything astonishing that you didn't expect to 
did did you have anything change from a perception you already had? Uh, yeah, I learned lots of Chopin. <laughs> 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 and I didn't know there was a piano, otherwise I would have um, illustrated some of the things. Yeah, so I, uh, I I had to go and do that and and have that moment where you, where you say, hey, this music is really something. I think it's going to be very popular. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the book? No, no, the, the music itself. I mean, I think this music is going to take off. <laughs> so I had that. Uh, I, I, the, the biggest thing really was um, uh, about miniatures. Um, was it, even thinking about um, Mahler, for instance, uh, there was a phase of monumentalism um, in music, and it's it's the music that we love, like you know, a, a great Mahler symphony, a great Mahler six. You know, there's no, there's nothing in the world like it. Um, uh, so, Dust Lead um, Tomorrow, which the the beautiful program book. Um, which Bernstein described as Mahler's. I was about to say, sorry. yeah, his best symphony. So um, we are connected. <laughs> and, and, it, and, and it really is an astonishing work. And the Der Abschied is the final movement and it goes for about half an hour. And it really is. And, and there's, a, there's a moment just at the very end of it where the mezzo just sings Ewig, Ewig, Ewig forever. Just, and it floats. And you sit there and you ball your eyes out and then don't talk to anyone for a week. Um, that's, that's that piece. So we're used to that sense of monumentalism. Um, and what this really taught me was the beauty and power of the miniature. And, um, and the, the, the interesting thing about the preludes, uh, which were played so beautifully this morning, um, <clears throat> um, is that some of them are these tiny little uh, just just miniatures you know the, the the number seven in a major is the waltz and that's eight i think it's only eight bars uh and it's over and uh, and so that's why people after you know, when music started to become monumental in the second half of the 19th century it's when people just sort of went okay well, what are we going to do with chopin you know mm. um, this funny salon composer or scarlatti um, oh, or yeah exactly and um and so the easy thing to do was with Scarletti was to start, you know, uh, late in the century and, and first in the first three decades of the, um, the 20th century when Ralph Kirkpatrick started cat cataloguing and then publishing and editing the, um, the Scarletti sonatas was to group them and to talk about, you know, these great, you know, monuments. And that's what they started to do with Chopin. How do we monumentalize the mm. miniature? And so, of course, you know, the preludes, oh God, okay, we must start performing them as a cycle. And, you know, it's impossible. It's in absolutely impossible. The poor to pianist. Um, you know, the poor pianist. But, but they started, you know, thinking of themselves as mountain climbers um, in the, you know, that's why um, uh, Strauss's Alpine Symphony is just so apt because he saw himself as that figure, you know, climbing the mountain and, and conquering. And so, we started thinking about conquering music and, and to conquer uh, an eight-bar music mm. waltz um, is not quite, you know, what these macho yeah. pianists wanted. Some of that philosophy still remains, I think, in classical music, the kind of cult of virtual, virtuosity. And I don't know, I think that there's a bit more poetry in a tiny little shred of music sometimes than this great big thing, you know. And people are convinced that, you know, I mean, a lot of people don't like Mahler symphonies actually. They don't like them. They go because, like, their wife drags them along to the MSO. or But, you know, it's just it's a lot to process, I think. And sometimes a tiny thing can say so much more. And that's it's a big challenge for a composer to not really bang on about something for ages to make their point. I guess it's like language, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, 
And it's interesting that the antithesis, the, the penis two are the antithesis. That's a hard word to say. Uh, the penis two are the opposite of that. Especially later. <laughs> later on. <time. laughs> yeah, later on. Uh, like Richter um, uh, was an amazing virtuoso, but uh, in 1979, uh, and this is true, um, he performed just about half of the the, the preludes in um, Japan. And uh, and by that stage, by the 1970s and 60s, like people like Polini and all the rest of it, um, Michelangeli, um, Polini's a bit later, actually. Polini's the 70s when he kind of um, uh, starts to really take off. One um, more fun fact. Yeah. Stephen McIntyre also learned from Michelangeli. Oh, did he? He did. Man. That man's got chops. Um, yeah. Sorry, I interrupted um, your train. No, so uh, the, so Richter in seventy nine in um, uh, in Japan, and and he deals with these preludes, and he chooses just ten of them or eleven of them, um, and he does like the waltz I was just telling you about. He does something completely amazing. People will play it normally. Dum da da dum 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 da da dum pom pom, and he just each time will just leave the thread dangling in the air and then off it'll go again, and you're sitting there just completely mesmerised. And um, very few people would do that. And, and Richter just had that kind of amazing imagination and the complete reluctance to monumentalise things that actually were intimate and. Um, and that's much in more in the spirit with um, with Chopin. We know that Chopin performed, you know, the largest crowd he ever performed to was in, in Manchester in 1848, the year before he died on this terrible tour that he undertook. Um, and that's, you know, a few hundred people. Um, he liked settings like this. He would have been very at home here. Um, and, uh, um, uh, yeah, he, he, he and, and all the commentators, people who knew him well, just sort of said he always gave the impression that um, he was playing almost for himself, and just plucking that idea from his head and um, just playing it for the first time. And he had that sense of improvisation. And that's what I love about the Richter, these Richter performances. And, and people who monumentalise them, they can start to sound like this big machine. You know, mm. Suddenly we're just trying to play um, some big romantic piece. Yeah. Mm. Um, is... Running on empty, folks, and it's only date. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, um, did did you learn anything about um, the performance practice of Chopin? Like, is there an, is there enough <coughs> information? For example, um, with Rachmaninoff, everyone speaking of monumentalism, mm. everybody I think really overblows Rachmaninoff as a great romantic, and and when we play it at work, there's like you slow down all the time and you milk it for all it's worth, but actually. When you look at the music structurally, it's very syncopated and highly rhythmic. And for that to speak in Rachmaninoff, it has to be neat and tidy and not emoted yeah. and messed with. And it's really interesting. You can go to YouTube right now this afternoon and listen to Rachmaninoff play his own music. On yeah. like, There's millions of recordings and yeah. it's very unsentimental. It's very dry. It's very unromantic. and But we still somehow – Hollywood loved – Rachmaninoff and they took yeah. him and they turned, you know, that Frank Sinatra song and he they turned lots of Rachmaninoff into pop, what were pop tunes of the day. I just wonder if there was 
enough information that you found that would inform the performance practice well, of Chopin? The, clo- the closest thing we have to that was Chopin because, of course, he dies in 1849 and, um, you know, and Rachmaninoff is right through, certainly into the um, piano roll age. Um, it doesn't quite hit the electric recording age, which is from 1926. Yeah, because we can hear Debussy playing his own music on piano roll as well. Yes, yeah, and they're, is, they're just beautiful documents. Um, similarly dry and un, unmessed with Yeah, somehow. I think Rachmaninoff's an interesting character. He, he he met one of my idols, um, which is uh, um, Karol Szymanowski, the Polish um, uh, pianist and composer, and uh, and he was asked afterwards. You know, they were having a very nice chat. They were on a boat, and uh, and uh, and Rachmaninoff was asked, "Oh, uh, I saw you with Szymanowski. You know, um, uh, beautiful music." And um, and he said, "Oh no, the music is shit, but the man is very nice." And <laughs> and and I think that tells you a lot about Rachmaninoff. He's kind of so in his yeah. you know in his little um, little world. So we have at least documents uh, for him. We can look at what he did when he was playing his own stuff. And even though piano rolls have a slight kicky life of their own, um, you know, it's still a document. We still know so much about it. Um, well, that's obviously not the case with uh, Chopin, but Chopin taught um, a lot of pupils, some of them not very good, some of them very society people, um, uh, etc. Well, you've but got to pay the rent. You've got to pay the rent. And, and don't forget he for died... For cell number um, four. For cell number four. He died impoverished um, and very much uh, 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 at the hands of the benefactress um, uh, Jane Sterling, um, a Scottish aristocratic um, lady who was a hero. Uh, but uh, he taught uh, a, a good, a good, not a great pianist, but someone who became a good teacher called um, Mikuli. And Mikuli uh, taught a number of um, really important people. Um, and one of them is uh, Raoul uh, Koshalski, um, uh, who was a very, very young pupil um, uh, of Mikuli's and then lived well into, well, he didn't live well into the um, recording, electric recording age, but he did. He, he died in 1940. 50 or 51, I think, and um, and did these fantastic recordings of the preludes. Um, so he did. So he's the, like the grandson of. Yes, the grandson. Chopin and and, and, and Landowska was a granddaughter because she learnt through another person who is you know. So there are all these Polish um, and and filial connections, um, and you're left with uh, these recordings that are really unusual and quite beautiful, and it's interesting that um, uh, you know, many of us g- sort of grew up um, loving um, Artur Rubinstein um, and, and his piano um, recordings and performances. And Rubinstein hated Koshalski um, because Rubinstein, even though he's uh, mercurial and interesting, um, he was uh, of a tradition of Chopin playing that had grown obviously quite far apart from the traditions that Mikuli and Koshalski uh, you know, held true to. And, and Mikuli also was um, a, a great editor of Chopin's scores and he'd always fill them with notes of things that he remembers from his lessons. Mm. So he was always able to just say, oh, no, Chopin played – he may have written it this way, but he played it this way and, uh, and all that. So, yeah, and then there's another – you know, one of the heroes of <clears throat> who turns up a few times in this book um, is uh, Jean-Jacques Agoldinger, um, a fantastic name apart from anything, but um, he's a, a Chopin scholar and uh, – and he uh, has done so much work in that regard of just sort of saying, okay, you know, and he put together this beautiful book called um, Chopin uh, and he brought together every document um, and every uh, comment by all of Chopin's contemporaries. And so people that just sort of said, oh, I had these lessons and this is what he said to me and, um, 
and that's a really that's a treasure trove. So, uh, but I think that the most yeah you know, the most striking thing is that you know you had uh, Arthur Rubinstein, which was uh, who was a more interesting um, extension of Anton Rubinstein, um, no relation, but Anton Rubinstein really started steering uh, the Chopin tradition into this monumental way of thinking about the music and playing the music. And, um, and more showbiz and more Hollywood. Oh, completely. Yeah. And yep. also, look at me, aren't I, aren't I butch? Yeah. You know, there was something a, a bit of feat about some of Chopin's music as mm -hmm. well, that all these straight um, men, uh, you know, <laughs> just sort of went, well, we better butch that up a bit. And, uh, yeah. Whereas, of course, Clara Schumann um, was, you know, a great exponent of, um, of some of uh, Chopin's playing. And she was a contemporary of his. And, you know, Schumann, her husband, uh, just sort of said, oh, God, I, I think, you know, she often plays it more interestingly than, than um, certainly than Robert, but um, certainly Chopin, Chopin himself. So it's interesting how these traditions started to diverge and they started to diverge uh, the moment Chopin died in, yeah. in 1849, you know, and then it was all people trying to sort of take him on as their own and, um, and not least of all Landowska, um, but she tries to do it uh, as a corrective and, um, and does it beautifully. And that's the great sadness about the, uh, the dissolution of the marriage, uh, the relationship between Sand and Chopin, that Sand wasn't that person because she lived till the 1870s and she mm. could have been that wonderful person. But it really is as, as ghastly as I describe in the book, this final meeting. It's just horrible. Um, yeah. Well. She's, I, I left a bit of it out, out of the talk, but it's certainly in, where she just sort of says when they meet um, uh, in... 1848. Mm, yes. <laughs> it really is 1848, um, and he's about to go off to um, um, he's about to go off to England, and they meet at the the Maliani's place, and um, and she writes in uh, Histoire de ma vie. She writes that um, it was her, she knew that what she was meant to do uh, was to say to him, uh, "It's fine. You don't love me. It's fine." And um, and uh, and then you know she was going to be able to walk away, um, but all she saw was icy hatred, and um, and that's the last time she ever saw him. So that is really yeah. sad. Terrible. Can I ask, um, Joe? Have are you going to sign books? Sure. Here, yeah. Yeah. should we leave a little time for that in case yeah, people should. are going to yeah. another show? And um, who scheduled this <laughs> festival? <laughs> Stefan. Yes, it was Stefan. Yes. <laughs> it was all Stefan. <laughs> I'd just like to thank you all for coming. We didn't know how many people we were going to get. We've never done this at a Port Ferry Spring Music Festival before. Well, I don't think we've ever had a featured author. Featured. Yeah, well, a celebrity superstar. Um, so thank you very much for coming. I hope you all enjoy the festival. Thank you to Joe and Dean at Blarney Books for having us. Yeah. And, um, yeah, have a chat to Paul and... And try not to give him RSI. <laughs> You've probably got special muscles that most people don't have, signing book signing muscles. Yeah. yeah. So great. Thanks a lot, everyone, Thank and you have so a great much. festival. Thank you, Paul. <laughs>